The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. Support your healthy CoQ10 levels and blood pressure with two chews a day. Visit RadioBeatsBeets.com and save 15% with promo code DEAL. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, good afternoon. This is Tolu Oloranipo with The Washington Post. Hi, this is Amy Britton calling in The Post. This is Peter Jameson from The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, November 27th. Today, what self-driving cars can't see. A screenwriter who left Hollywood to become a novelist. And a politician with a passion for Turkey. So let's say you take a self-driving car out of the city. And suddenly it sees something furry and four-legged. Well, the car has to really rapidly decide what that thing is. You, as an adult, or even as a toddler, you're going to see something about the way that animal moves or about the shape that says, oh, hey, that's a cow. Or maybe you'll see antlers and you'll say, hey, that's a deer. And you'll sort of adjust your expectation or your your movements accordingly. Now it's the car that suddenly has to make all of those decisions. And it's an interesting kind of two-step process, right? Because it's like, first, you have to actually identify the animal. And even that for a self-driving car seems to be a challenge of just being able to like take the visual image and identify what this animal is. But then you have to know enough about the animal, stuff that we just kind of grow up learning, to know how does that animal move? How fast is it? How unpredictable is it? What is it trying to do? And then like in the span of a quarter of a second, be able to say, like, I know this animal. I know what it's going to do. I know whether I need to adjust my driving to account for the fact that it's on the side of the road. And that's that's actually a lot of decision-making that has to happen really fast. Yeah, that's right. Fez Siddiqui covers tech for The Post. He reports on automation and the future of transportation. I mean, the issue here is you risk overcorrection. And if you overcorrect on the highway, you know that you can't just slam your brakes to a stop every time you are presented with something that might be hazardous. And that's the issue these self-driving engineers are encountering. How do you prevent those overcorrections while also maintaining a safe speed, while also maintaining caution around anything that might pose a potential hazard? Basically, how do you program a car to have a brain? Fez tracks how these companies test their engineering and what happens to the whole industry when there's a crash. Like last year, when a woman was struck and killed by a self-driving Uber car while crossing a dark street in Tempe, Arizona. It was the first known fatality from self-driving vehicles. And there was a lot of interest in the subject because the tech industry has sort of staked the future on this idea of self-driving. The National Transportation Safety Board posted a docket that reflected some of the factors leading up to the crash. One of them that a lot of people focused on was the fact that Uber never programmed its vehicles to account for the possibility of jaywalking pedestrians. That's interesting. So even though a car can recognize a person in a crosswalk, when a person is no longer in a crosswalk or a place where they're supposed to be walking, that the car no longer sees them as a person. Exactly. And that has tremendous implications because it suggests that A pedestrian who is outside of a painted lane is no longer a pedestrian in the eyes of these robots. The woman who was killed was classified as a vehicle 
or a bicycle or simply other. Had she been inside a painted crosswalk, the vehicle could have predicted the path that she would follow. So what was the reaction to this revelation from the investigation into this crash? Experts in Silicon Valley were absolutely floored that Uber had failed to account for this possibility. I mean, it stands to reason that people are going to walk outside of crosswalks. There are plenty of cities that don't have great infrastructure for pedestrians. And you can always predict that people are going to be unpredictable. And so people were just shocked that Uber had failed to program for this possibility. And it raised questions about what else the cars didn't know. And I feel like that's something that we hear a lot when we talk about autonomous vehicle technology or the artificial intelligence that are used for self-driving cars, that there are a million different distinct incidents that can happen or unexpected circumstances that can come up, and that there's this concern that the cars aren't really equipped to be able to process those those different incidents. Yeah, I mean— The challenge here is not programming them to follow a set of rules. That's something that the programmers are able to do. But how do you map out every possible scenario that a self-driving vehicle might encounter? How can a car distinguish between different types of animals that might act differently on the side of the road? You're not going to want to slam the brakes from 60 miles per hour to a stop if you see a cow behind a fence. But if you see a deer, perhaps you're going to want to swerve. And so this is a thing that, that folks that you've been talking to that they are concerned about. What do they say is the solution to getting cars better at interpreting these kinds of unexpected circumstances? One of the major points that people hit on is there needs to be a diverse group of subject matter experts who can essentially, as a committee, decide what are the various situations that these vehicles are going to encounter. So it's not just up to programmers to account for those scenarios, but to have an exhaustive or an attempt at an exhaustive logbook of everything a vehicle might see. I mean, it was just unthinkable to these folks that Uber didn't consider the possibility of a jaywalking pedestrian. But in a sense, it was really revealing. And it reflected that maybe these cars aren't as ready as previously thought. A crash can often reveal the state of play in in a world that is otherwise pretty opaque. The companies have no incentive to tell you what they don't know. But this crash told us a lot we didn't already know about Uber. I mean, one of the striking things was that as this vehicle encountered Elaine Herzberg six seconds or nearly six seconds before this fatal crash, It did classify her uh, as a vehicle, as a bicycle, as other, but it didn't have memories. It had the memory of a goldfish. In other words, it basically erased its knowledge of what it knew and continued to try to reclassify her until it was too late. And that's a real problem because a person would make that connection that the thing it saw in the shadows five seconds ago is the same thing it's now seeing coming toward the road. And this is the trouble. How do you program this robocar to have a mind to not only follow goals that you've assigned to it, but to have perception and prediction? So now that we're getting this better understanding of how this technology works, the ways in which it could potentially fail, are there efforts that are being made to prevent this kind of 
temporary AI shortcoming from hurting people in the future? I think one thing you're seeing is a sort of correction on timelines where Silicon Valley was previously very optimistic and many would say overly optimistic about when this technology would arrive and at what broad of a scale it would be deployed on. Now that's being corrected. You'll a lot of times see companies tout their safety chops and their caution in deploying these kinds of technologies. You see them shying away from offering specific timelines that maybe they could not otherwise meet, where previously companies might have not desired a sense of regulation or where where companies didn't want to have the government essentially breathing down their necks. Now some of them are open to it and they essentially want to be clearer about what the expectations are for this technology. They don't want to be irresponsible and they don't want to be the first one to screw up. The National Transportation Safety Board has not yet determined a probable cause for that crash in 2018. An Uber spokesperson said that the company regrets the crash and has vastly overhauled its self-driving unit since then. Fez Siddiqui covers tech for The Post. I, well, okay. You don't have to ask me who I am. (laughs) (laughs) Natalie Kasika, my boss. (laughs) Obviously, as executive producer of Post Reports, you're often thinking about the podcast. But recently, you actually did some of your own reporting, and you wrote a story about Attica Locke. So for people who don't know, who is Attica Locke? Well, she is a writer of crime novels, And her first book, she actually wrote in 2009 called Blackwater Rising, and it was set in Houston, Texas in the 1980s. What was interesting to me was in the crime writing genre, there aren't a lot of women of color who are writing crime genre. So that was the first book I read. I read a couple more of her books. Two more books came out after that. So I was always on the lookout for her. And then a few years ago, I, like probably a lot of Americans, was watching the show Empire on Fox TV. And I saw in the credits, a writer and producer credit, Attica Locke. And my first thought was, wait, is that the same Attica Locke? So I did a bit of digging. And yes, indeed, it was the same Attica Locke, whose novels I'd been reading, who was now writing for Empire. And that's pretty unusual to see someone who is both a successful novelist also writing and producing for TV at the same time. Yeah, you know, they're completely different art forms. So I sort of started reading up a lot more about her, and I thought, okay, she's writing screenplays. And then a few years later, just a couple of years ago, she came out with another novel. I'd read that she had left Empire, And she wrote a novel set on Highway 59 in Texas, and it was the beginning of a series. So I thought, that's an amazing career. And I really wanted to find out more about her, which I did. And uh, she has a very interesting career trajectory. She's actually one of these people who went to Hollywood and went to seek fame 
and she wanted to be a director and writer in Hollywood. So her first intention was to be writing screenplays and to be potentially directing. Exactly. She was a Sundance fellow in writing and directing, and she went to Hollywood, and uh, she couldn't get the story she wanted to do made. All I saw is what I'm doing now isn't working, and people do not seem to be interested, not only in my own personal voice when I wrote my own film that they decided they didn't want to make because it was difficult to monetize my blackness, that it was just not, how are they going to make money off this black rural story? And then they also didn't want to make the movies they were hiring me to write. I just went, I don't want to do this anymore, and I walked away. And so she quit. She got a second mortgage on her home and said, gave herself a year to write a novel. And uh, the rest, you know, she's had an amazingly successful career as a novelist. That's interesting that you would leave Hollywood and go to the much more safe profession, the much more reliable profession of, of novel writing. Well, she first and foremost calls herself a storyteller. No matter what I do, my first job is as a storyteller. And to entertain people and to write narratives that make sense. So she was sort of free to write whatever she wanted as a novel, and that's what she did. But a very interesting thing happened in Hollywood while she was writing her novels. They started getting interested in other stuff. They started realizing that stories about people of color could be more marketable. Yeah, and she, you know, she says she doesn't think it's a coincidence that a little bit of that she was sort of benefiting from a post-Obama bump. But also television, streaming shows. So everything that I was trying to do in movies, you know, grown-up stuff and deep character work with sociopolitical themes and all this kind of stuff, all of that work moved to television. The era of peak TV. Exactly. So sort of the Hollywood lure was still there, and uh, she found herself on Empire, which was being produced by Lee Daniels, a very prolific, successful movie producer and director who tells black stories. I'm curious if you got a sense from her about what she thinks are the skills that cross over very easily from being a novelist to going back to writing for TV, and what she had to kind of rediscover or figure out how to do again uh, when she decided to venture back into the territory of writing for television? Well, I think, you know, the thing I was most interested in was the fact that she went to a TV show and it was serialized storytelling, which I guess on some level is a little bit like chapters, but it is, it's also fundamentally different. I set out to make it a series because of having spent time writing in episodic television and realizing that serialized storytelling is fun, that it's kind of nice to hang out with the character for a while and watch them kind of wrestle with things and change and grow. And from your reporting, folks who worked with her on Empire said that much of the character of Cookie, who's like the star of Empire, kind of the beating heart of the show, that that came from Attica Locke. Yeah, I spoke with Lee Daniels, and he talked about how he first was introduced to her. She sent, I guess, a spec script, and he was blown away by it. And he was very impressed by her personally. And as he described it, he felt that she was able to bring something to Cookie that he wasn't able to do. When I think of Attica, I think of the voice of Cookie and standing and, and, and representing her the right way. She wouldn't let me do certain things because I saw Cookie one way and and she spoke as a black woman, she saved my ass a couple times. 
I think I always saw the softer side of Cookie in a way that Lee sometimes um, wanted to lean towards her gangster side. And I think the mother in me connected deeply with the mother in her. And she wanted to convey that sort of balance. Um, she's going to be okay. Yeah, she's going to be fine. I'm going to get her back. Okay, you know sure. what? Yes, just go wait in the car. Go ahead. You telling me you and Shine are going to do this? I'm telling you, we're looking forward to it. Get him out of here. Okay. Everything's going to be okay, I promise. That it's not an either or, that you're either a criminal or you are a mother figure, but that you can embody both of those things at one time. Exactly. And for people who have not watched Empire, it's sort of a dynasty meets King Lear, kind of it has the bling of a soap opera with the sort of drama of almost Shakespearean drama of a family that are these hip-hop moguls and, um, you know, the father comes from a, you know, dealing background early on in his career and then they become an empire. One thing that you pointed out that is notable about her novels is that she actually writes a lot about black men and black male experiences. And I think that for... Women, particularly women of color, who are stepping into genres where they're not as well represented, it's even more unusual to see them writing about men and writing about men's experiences from a place of confidence and feeling empowered to be able to take on the the positions of men. So I'm curious about what she said about that. I was really interested in that question, too, because almost all of her novel novels, the key protagonist is a male. So I asked her, what was that about? The truth of the matter is I look at myself as black before I look at myself as a woman. The greatest wounds I've had in my life have been because I'm black, not because I'm a woman. That's normally secondary. I've gotten pulled over in L.A. with guns pointed at me because my hair is short and they thought I was a man, not because I was a woman. They thought I was a black man. And so issues of race are front and center for me. I think one of the things that is so cool about looking at Attica Locke's career is that I think it represents something that we're seeing a little bit more, that particularly with people of color, creators and storytellers, that we've just started to reach this era where their stories are appreciated and valued more, but that they can also jump between genres and jump between media. We, we saw that with Ta-Nehisi Coates and his new book that is magical realism in novel form, which is something that he hasn't done before, even though he's had incredible success in being an essay writer and a thinker. We talked to Lauren Wilkinson recently, who wrote a novel about a spy and is also writing for television. And I wonder if you feel like that is something that Attica Locke has really tapped into, that because of the barrier-breaking nature of that people of color creators have had to take on, that they are in a position to be able to break barriers when it comes to the fundamental type of work that they're creating. Well, I think what's interesting about writers like that and writers like Attica is at the core, what they are doing is excavating the history and the lived experience of Black Americans and have managed to be able to translate that story into a lot of different spaces. I do think I'm aware of the fact that I can still, I still feel like I can touch slavery. I still feel like I'm not that many generations away from it, and I'm not that many generations at all. I'm a single one away from the civil rights movement. 
But my child who's coming up, these things are, they're so far away for her. So at heart, they are relying on history and the lived experience, and they want to tell good stories. And I think it's a, it's tough to be really good writer in one genre, <laughs> let alone in several. And I think that's what's really interesting about her. You know, not only did she, she writes exceptionally great novels that are ultimately, they're great page-turner crime books, right? But they also happen to deal, as her current series does, with a very core issue in American race, which is that the white supremacist movement and how Black Americans are living with that and how deep the history of that is. But, you know, she's worked on a fictional family and empire. She was one of the writers for Ava DuVernay's dramatization about the real-life story of the Central Park Five who were exonerated. And now she's adapting another novelist's book for Hulu. Celestine's book, Little Fires Everywhere. Yeah, and, you know, it's interesting to have a novelist translate another novelist's book for the screen. Yeah, it's, it's really multifaceted and interesting and... She's really, her cup runneth over. Madalika Sika is the executive producer of Post Reports. Attica Locke's latest book is Heaven, My Home. And now, one more thing about a politician's unusual Thanksgiving tradition. It's one of my favorite stories, I think, uh, over my entire career in journalism. (laughs) That's Matt Weiser, political reporter at The Post. So I used to work at the Boston Globe, and I covered politics, and as a result would be in contact with Michael Dukakis from time to time. Americans ought to measure our integrity. You have a right to know our values. So Michael Dukakis is a a former governor of Massachusetts. He's a former uh, Democratic presidential nominee in 1988. With your help and your prayers, I'll carry that belief with me right into the White House. Campaign that he lost uh, to George H.W. Bush. And Michael Dukakis has always had this reputation for being fiscally responsible. Very thrifty, very attuned to the state budget. And that sort of translates to his personal life, where he is very thrifty as as an individual. And one way that's translated into his personal life is his strong feelings about Thanksgiving turkeys, specifically about what you do with the turkey after it's eaten. So most people tend to try to cut as much turkey as you can off of the carcass and and then, you know, save the turkey for sandwiches or for for various uh, leftovers. And then usually throwing away the actual bones and and the rest of the carcass. Michael Dukakis would argue that there is much more substance still left in that carcass. Uh, You know, there's flavors of the bones. So he makes a soup with the turkey carcass with rice and and various other vegetables. But not only does Michael Dukakis do that, but he 
will collect and save other turkey carcasses to make throughout the rest of the year. What do you mean, like, collect that? Like, where, where does he collect turkey carcasses so, from? Like, if he's going to somebody else's house for Thanksgiving, he will take their turkey carcass and transport it back home to freeze it in his freezer. So I'd heard about this story and I contacted Michael Dukakis to talk to him about this tradition and then wrote about it in an article that appeared in the Boston Globe on November 25th, 2015. The man is renowned for his thriftiness. He drinks coffee bought in bulk at Costco at three cents per cup. And he preserves every last element of the Thanksgiving dinner, right down to the bone. Quote, throwing out a turkey carcass is sinful, absolutely sinful, Dukakis says in all seriousness. It's a terrible thing to do. There's so much richness and goodness in a turkey carcass. God. <laughs> God. <laughs> so... In the course of interviewing Michael Dukakis, he had mentioned to tell our readers that under no circumstance should they throw away their turkey carcass. They should use the carcass, he said. And if they don't, tell them to come to 85 Perry Street in Brookline and he, we'll he, make use of it, believe me. He actually just gave you his address and was like, put my address in the newspaper. He, he gives us the address. And so I, I, we quoted him, you know, just like ran the quote. And that was the last sentence in the story to, to provide the address. Hey, I was just texting you to ask if it'd be best for me to call from a landline. Oh, um, I mean, you sound pretty clear to me now. So actually, just say a few words. Uh, I'm here at Perry Street, where thanks to Matt Viser, uh, everyone <laughs> still has our address, <laughs> where we very much do still get quite a few turkey carcasses for like the week after Thanksgiving Day. Oh my God. <laughs> this is Allie Dukakis. She is the granddaughter of Michael Dukakis. She's also an investigative reporter and producer for ABC News. So she was actually the person who originally told Matt about this tradition that resulted in turkeys showing up on the front porch. So beginning that Friday in 2015, at 5.30, someone rang our doorbell and left two turkey carcasses. And by 11.40 a.m., we had, I think, a dozen. And I think some people rang the doorbell. Some people just dropped it off on his front porch. And some of them had notes, I remember. Some of them were very beautifully wrapped. Some were not. He collected so many turkey carcasses that he had to use his neighbor's uh, freezer to start storing some of them. Uh, I, I think the final tally was 26 or so. I don't think we expected it to last this long. <laughs> so, hey, I'm talking about your turkey carcass soup. You want to say something? To Martin from, from uh, the Daily Post. About? It's about the turkey carcass soup. No, 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 no. <laughs> Not again. He's <laughs> saying this because he because he this is what he thinks his legacy <laughs> is now is is the turkey carcass soup. So it turns out that Governor Dukakis gets asked about the carcass thing a lot, and he's kind of over being interviewed about it. But I think that there's a reason why there continues to be an enormous fascination with his intense commitment to making sure that turkey carcasses are never wasted. 
I think in a way it tells us something about different era of, of politics and how politics used to be practiced, uh, not only just in Massachusetts, but nationally to sort of be good stewards and sort of represent the best of what we want politicians to, to showcase. And, and so I think that he, in this story, sort of uh, reminds people of that kind of era of, of politics. Matt Weiser covers politics for The Post. There is also an official recipe for Michael Dukakis's turkey carcass soup, which was originally published by the Boston Globe. To find the link to that recipe, go to postreports.com. You know, it's really good soup. He, he brags about it, but the bragging is warranted. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. Tomorrow is Thanksgiving Day, so we'll be taking the day off. But we'll be back on Friday when we have a story about the surprising, complicated relationship between a Black activist and a neo-Nazi. Who would ever think a Black man would actually have a corporation name and utilize it for the National Social Movement? Nobody. (laughs) Right. But because you and I have a long history and we are friends, I don't have a problem doing this. You follow what I'm saying? I'm Martine Powers. Happy Thanksgiving, and we'll be back on Friday with more stories from The Washington Post.